Hello and welcome to the Rit Nerds Podcast, Episode 10. Today we speak with Tim Anderson from the Philadelphia Fire Department, which he's been a member of for 13 years and currently assigned to Squad Company Number 72. Tim also owns and operates Anderson Rescue Solutions, which offer many products to deal with rope rescue and down firefighters. This episode, Tim will discuss some of his products as well as give us some insight on a line of duty death that he and his crew was involved with. We hope you enjoy. Uh, welcome to the podcast today, guys. Uh, another Ridops podcast. It's been a little bit here. We've both been very busy. Some of us had to entertain some COVID issues as well as other some family issues. But that all straightened away. Uh, we have Tim Anderson from Anderson Rescue Solutions. Welcome, Tim. Thank you for having me, guys. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, it's glad we finally could link up here. It's been talked about many times, but <laughs> it, has. it has. So, uh, just you know, bringing up Philly. Want to give us a little background about yourself? Sure. Uh, yeah, Tim Anderson. Um, been in the fire service uh, since 2001. Um, been in Philly since 2008. Um, so, I think next month I hit uh, 13 years here in the city. Um, yeah, started as a volunteer, um, went to, went to, uh, college in North Carolina. I was only, uh, I only applied to schools where I knew I could still volunteer while I was there. Um, so I kind of got the, the bug pretty bad. Um, but then by the end of my freshman year, I was taking tests, um, mostly throughout the Northeast. Um, and, uh, yeah, so thankfully it worked out with Philly, uh, shortly after I graduated college in 07. So that worked well. Um, spent my first five years or so at uh, engine 16 in West Philadelphia. Uh, and since then have been at uh, squad 72, uh, which is one of the three special operations units for the city. Um, so we are a, um, rescue engine that also has a full range of special operations capabilities. So we cover a first due as well as uh, sort of the north half of the city for major fires and rescues or citywide as necessary if either the other SOC companies are out or there's a real major incident. Um, in uh, 2016, I founded Anderson Rescue Solutions to try to bring to market some equipment that I felt filled some gaps that I had encountered. Um, started with the uh, multi-loop rescue strap uh, and then kind of tumbled down the rabbit hole from there. And now there's a whole bunch of stuff for tech rescue, RIT, um, some tactical stuff. So it's kind of, uh, taken on a life of its own. So, um, I probably should have rolled over in bed and forgotten about the whole thing, but here we are. <laughs> so, yeah, that's actually how I, I, I was introduced to you, uh, through the, um, the, uh, the rescue strap there, <clears throat> sorry, the multi-loop strap. Um, I found that on the fast board through some okay. fast board training and, you know, next thing you know, I, I went to work the next day and I grabbed my length of webbing and started putting some loops in it. I'm like, this is an awesome idea <laughs> or uh, some overhand knots to make loops. So, and then eventually I was like, why don't I just go buy one? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I appreciate yeah. it. I hope everybody then, uh, just goes and buys one. <laughs> all right. Well, it's nice. One drill night, my chief showed up and threw me four of them. I'm like, what do you want me to do with these? He's like, they're for our team. Put them where there you go. need them. America. So I was like, all right. <laughs> I like it. So, I mean, I've used the strap numerous times. You know, its advantages um, really outweigh the very, very few disadvantages. And, you know, I, I think it's a tremendous strap. Um, 
as much as I'm a big fan of carrying a, a loop of webbing, you know, a 20, 25 foot piece, this sure. thing is at the same level. So great. I mean, the whole point of the strap is just something that, um, you know, it's webbing that works in the environment that we need it to work in. So, I mean, that's the, if you can't see, can't feel pulse is 200 and you think you're going to die, a loop of webbing is just not going to work. And that's what the multi rescue strap is designed to work in. It's just designed to be ultra simple so that you can actually package somebody in that environment and um, try to go from there. So the one question I always get about your strap is the difference between the carabiner and the bullring. Like, is there, yeah. what's the major, so major it's take started away? the first version of it was the one with the rigging ring sewn in. Um, I wanted a tactile reference point in the center. So you got the two in handles, which with 11 mil ropes sewn in them. So you can feel those. Um, but I wanted another reference point. Uh, so that gives you the center point. You can use that for rigging for uh, vertical lifts or, or to find the midpoint to add a carabiner to attach to a down fireman and things like that. Um, guys, you know, kept requesting to put a carabiner there. And at the time, I – so I, I started with the, the rigging ring version myself. Um, I keep an extra carabiner clipped on the front of my coat um, that I've – you know, cause always kind of the mindset, if I need a carabiner there, I'll just, just add it. Uh, and it won't be a big, big, be that big of a deal. Um, but, uh, actually as I think we we're going to talk about later, but the, um, the fire, uh, that killed, uh, Lieutenant Matt Letourneau a couple of years ago, uh, at one point during that, that extrication process, I wanted to do that. I wanted to take the carabiner off my coat and put it on the, the rigging ring. And I was too exhausted to do it. Right. Um, so where the rigging ring is kind of found a home is more for tech rescue stuff. So um, for confined space jobs, water stuff, you know, places where you've got uh, other carabiners around and generally you have the visual ability and the dexterity to, to mess with it a little bit. Um, the rigging ring is, is a great asset there for, uh, for frontline operators in high stress environments like the fire ground or tactical. The carabiner version is nice to have because you have that option built in. Um, so that's kind of how I, how I describe it. If you're, uh, yeah, if you're using it yourself downrange and high stress, the carabiner is nice because it can still be a rigging ring if you want it to be, but you have that ability to go ahead and make um, connection points with it. Um, and the rigging ring is still great. Like if there are a ton of carabiners, another carabiner in the chain is kind of annoying. So it's, uh, it's a little bit high speed, low drag for, for that kind of stuff um, and slightly lighter weight. Uh, but that's kind of the, the difference between the two. Okay. Good example there. Um, you know, I don't know who runs your media side of ARS, but scrolling through Instagram and now Facebook, um, as much as I try not to go on that, uh, <laughs> I see your pulleys everywhere. It's like people are throwing them against any piece of metal they could find just to show that they're magnetic. Um, you know, I know you've hit on this in other podcasts, but, you know, that's a tremendous uh, feat to, to come up with in the rigging world. So uh, what besides the pulleys do you have on deck? On deck or, or out now? Well, on deck, if you could hint to anything. Um, hmm. Let's see. If so, not, uh, I understand. There's a couple, uh, couple irons in the fire. Uh, the problem right now is, is just being a, you know, a small company or an, an awkwardly small, more medium-sized company that's still being run by uh, people all part-time. Um, it's right. just the time factor of, like, for example, yesterday I spent, I don't know, four or five hours running around doing different nonsense. Uh, and then I spent 15 minutes on R&D on a new project. 
which I really wanted to spend the four hours on the R and D and the 15 minutes on the other nonsense, but uh, that's just how it goes. So, um, so there's a, there's a lot of things I'd like to work on. Um, some, yeah, some different, some tech rescue stuff for some mass transit stuff for some water rescue, some accessories to go with uh, the pulleys and some other stuff. So nice. little black book has many ideas in it. Just need <laughs> enough time to, uh, to put some effort into them. So, so we'll yeah. see. We'll see. All right. Well, I understand, you know, you don't want to give too much away, but <laughs> that little photo you put out the other day of the oh, R&D, yeah. I was like, Oh, what do we got here? Yeah. So. That's the one I spent 15 minutes on and then was staring at the ceiling line. Uh, going to sleep last night, trying to figure out how to make it work in the head, but <laughs> I could tell you, but awesome. No, nah, no, nah, I understand. <laughs> um, well, as, as many know, we've said this before, we're trying to move our podcast, um, to keep it open, talk about training, talk about, you know, stuff that's been brought to our attention in the, uh, the RIT world. And, uh, but we're trying to really learn, um, as much as we have our NIOSH reports, and other papers that come out on studies, you know, like the Asheville study and stuff like that, the Fairfax study. Uh, we do learn a lot from there. But most of all, as we know in this, in our line of duty, that you really truly learn from your hands-on or firsthand experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we're going to talk about uh, Lieutenant Letourneau. Sorry, I hope I don't, I don't butcher that too much. That's good. Um, you know, and, and, and what happened that day? Um, if you could give us a rundown of a basic, you know, how the call started out and then uh, to where it kind of got sideways for you guys. Sure. Um, so thinking about this uh, today, I kind of came with three disclaimers I want to put out there first. Um, uh, the first one being, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of odd to talk about these events uh, and you feel some sort of weird, it almost feels guilty talking about them. Um, but, uh, but reflecting on that and especially on what happened and, uh, but, but Matt in particular, Matt Letourneau was uh, really into the job, into learning, into studying, um, and he would want any lessons from this job talked about. So, um, so that's kind of how I, you know, uh, justify that. Uh, the, um, so that's important, I think. Um, hang on, my computer's doing something weird. All right. Can you all still see me? Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. So number one, um, I think he would want the, the lessons uh, from that job discussed. Um, two, the opinions I'm going to give uh, are my own. Um, and as we all know, everyone's perspectives, especially during high stress events, are going to be different. So, you know, especially if any Philly guys listen to this or guys who were there, um, I fully understand that they might have a different take on some of the things than I do. Um, simply because, you know, how we, uh, absorb and process information in these environments is going to be different. So, um, I fully understand that. Uh, so I'm not going to try to do anything, say anything too crazy or anything. Um, and then finally, uh, the mistakes we'll talk about will be my own. Um, and any successes are, are all based on the team. So, um, I'm happy to talk about my mistakes at this job obviously everybody makes mistakes that, that lead to things, but um, you can let other people talk about theirs, but, uh, but the ones I'll hit on will be, be my personal mistakes. Um, and then again, any, any successes, like one, one of the things that's weird about this job was that given the, the environment and the circumstances, I think 
we did a decent job. Um, but, uh, but that's a weird emotional trade-off because um, it was a terrible day and we lost Matt and, and uh, we weren't able to do what we were doing fast enough to get him out. So, um, right. so it's a weird, weird thing to uh, kind of wrestle with on that level. But um, anyway, uh, but the successes are all because of the team, because of outstanding guys um, working really hard in a difficult environment. So, um, so that job, uh, it was January 6th um 2018 the it was stupid cold outside we'd just gotten through a pretty bad snowstorm snow and ice thing um the, the days leading up um i had actually it was my first day back to work after being off for a month with the uh, birth of a kid um after a really difficult pregnancy so it was kind of a weird like morning back to work and that was our first run of the day so it was kind of a kind of a nutty way to start back after kind of being out of the game for, for a month or so. Um, job came in at eight 54 in the morning or at least that's when, uh, um, engine 45 Matt's engine arrived on scene. Um, and, uh, the temperature and the, the weather conditions were a big player. So you couldn't even fit down the block. Uh, it was on Colorado street that the, the uh, one of the most annoying things about urban firefighting in snow is that the um, the small streets don't get plowed for like weeks in in a major city, and so they end up getting these these car sized ruts down the snow. But the fire truck is wider, so trying to get it down that street without smashing all the cars on either side because it kind of throws the truck around. Right. Um, but uh, anyway, so they parked on the end of the block. The dwelling was kind of mid block, so it was a decent stretch. Uh, to get there. So no apparatus are in front of the dwelling at all. Uh, autos, snow, ice. Um, I think it was a pretty sustained wind that day. And the temperature was probably like eight degrees outside. Um, so right off the bat, they had water problems. We went on, we, my unit went on the uh, um, sort of the, the, what most people call like a working fire dispatch in Philly for a dwelling. Um, you get uh, four engines, two ladders, two chiefs, um, and, uh, if it goes to a, a working fire, what they say two and two, when you put two engines, two ladders in service, you get a writ ladder, um, in the first two sock company, if it goes all hands, uh, you get an additional sock company. So, um, that was technically in, in rescue ones local, they were operating on another job. So we, we headed down on the two and two, um, rescue one eventually jumped off that job to go to this one. And we got we got recalled, but we continued that direction. And within two minutes, it went all hands anyway. So, uh, so we got there pretty quick. Uh, but the, the water was a huge problem right away. You could hear it on the radio. They couldn't, um, you know, getting working hydrants uh, was, a, was a big issue for all the engines on scene. Um, and simultaneously, as they were trying to make entry, they found a, an occupant in the front door. So, um, so you know right away that's an occupied dwelling. Uh, this isn't um we get a ton of vacant work in philly anyway and i could go in a whole spiel on vacant fires and how they're not vacants uh because vacant buildings don't light themselves on fire but anyway um uh, but you knew right off the bat that it was an occupied dwelling um because they pulled somebody out uh who unfortunately died from their injuries but um so right away you've got you've got that you've got water supply issues um we ended up coming up the street behind engine 45 
and my lieutenant, his first orders to me, they got sent to go check the uh, Delta exposure. Um, but he told me, he's like, dude, get 45s water. So I gave them our tank and then helped them stretch to another hydrant, which ended up being their third hydrant um, that they had tried uh, that thankfully they were able to get water out of. Um, so that kind of set the tone there. Um, so working up to the, uh, up to the job, when I made it to the front of the dwelling, my guys to just kind of clear the Delta, um, there's traps and smoke, but no fire. And, um, we, uh, we were out front and they were having difficulty. It was a hoarder. And I mean, you can see from the, the photos and the NIOSH report, how much junk was in there. Um, so they're having trouble getting in there, having trouble making the second floor. Um, I was, as the driver, I was assigned to the roof team. So I ended up going to the roof and, uh, starting to work there. And initially we were on the fire dwelling roof and then that roof kind of got, um, crappy. So we were operating off the Delta exposure, uh, but making a, uh, making cuts along the, the party wall, um, which is something we do pretty frequently. If, if, if there's a dwelling that that's kind of rock and rolling a bit, we'll, we'll make, um, it's basically a trench cut, but it's, it's not doing what a traditional trench does. I kind of call it like a, a party wall relief cut. Basically we're cutting a trench along the party wall so that the heat can escape before it just pounds away um, at the adjoining dwelling. So anyway, so we are working on that um, and uh, looking at the timeline, um, I think it was 39 minutes in when the collapse occurred. And during this time, engines were in, they were out, they were in, they were out because they kept losing water. So the first engine would lose water and the second engine would go in with their line um, and uh, some of the things that kind of came out of this were, were the, uh, the extreme cold made it look like the job was, was going better than it was from a smoke perspective with the whole sort of white smoke phenomenon. And, and there's a bunch of stuff on that in the, the report and all. Um, but engines were in and out, in and out. Um, and one of the difficulties there, I don't necessarily have any problem with that tactic, um, which we can get into, but, but the big thing I think there is you need to communicate. Um, everyone on the fire ground needs to be aware if we're currently pulled out or if we're currently in uh, just because that, like when, when I was on the roof, there was some confusion where I thought we were operating exterior and I didn't make a couple radio transmissions that I would have made had I known we were interior at the time um, based on some structural conditions I was looking at. But, uh, um, but anyway, so uh 39 minutes in the collapse occurs and I don't think anybody really knew what was, what had happened. There was a mayday. Um, There's a couple of simultaneous things that happened. So there was a guy who had just made it one of the search guys from one of the ladder companies who just made it to the sort of the second floor landing when the collapse occurred and he rode the collapse down, um, which is pretty gnarly. And the way that, yeah. it, the way that it split uh, kind of down the middle, he ended up, kind of he saw a light through the, the rear kitchen door the way layout or row houses it's kind of like a living room dining room kitchen layout and where he came down um ended up sort of right at the entrance to the kitchen and so he was able to see out the door and just kind of beelined it i mean his boots were off like the whole nine yards so oh wow so you got that guy and you had i think two guys on the steps um one of whom uh the officer of either second or third engine gave a mayday uh and they kind of got tied up on the steps and were pulled out by um a couple different folks from either my company or rescue who were operating on that first floor 
Um, you know, one of the miracles of this job, there were like five or six guys in that first floor and only Matt got pinned. Uh, so it could have been, um, not that it wasn't horrific enough, but it, you know, we could have lost whole companies. In right. It. Um, so, but one of the confusing things, so a mayday goes out, the guy who gave the mayday is kind of tied up like physically. Um, and when the dude goes rolling out the back door, uh, the, the chief in the rear sees him come out, um, and says, ah, oh, we got him. We got him out the rear. So, um, I was on the roof and we're, you know, Saul's are running everything. And so it was like, Whoa, did you hear that? Was there a mayday? And then I see a guy out the back and we kind of be like, Whoa, that was crazy. And you hear the chief say, Oh, we got him. So it's kind of like a, Oh, this thing is over. Um, and, uh, so we kind of went about our business on the roof. Like, wow, I was nuts. All right. I guess something happened. Um, it took a couple minutes for, for me to understand that there was still an ongoing incident. Um, Tim, can I stop you real quick? Yeah, go for it. Did conditions change after the collapse that you guys noticed on the roof? Uh, no, not that okay. I remember noticing. Um, yeah. I mean, okay. Kinda, sorry. We kind of went about our business. The, uh, we were starting to ask for a hose line because it looked like the fire conditions on the second floor were going to start kind of burn through the roof. So we were, we kind of started to try to get a hose line from command and he kind of told us not right now. And we're kind of like, wait, what's that was one of the clues. It was like, wait, something else is going on here. Um, but it took a couple minutes for, for me to even realize that there was an ongoing uh, mayday. So, um, so that's no, that was, that was the person that was in the stairwell still. No. So the, the stairwell guy and the guy with him, um, within the first, within the first 30 seconds of the, of the collapse, the guy made it out the rear who rode the collapse down and the guys on the stairway were extricated by the guys who were kind of standing right there in the living room who happened to be guys from the interior team of my company and, and some guys from rescue one. Okay. Um, and, uh, they did an emergency evacuation just to get everybody out. Um, and so that's kind of where we stood. They, they, they got all those guys out and then it was kind of a par check uh that led to wait a minute someone else is, is still in here and also a pass alarm going off that um some of my my guys heard uh early on uh about how long do you know or could you estimate <clears throat> from the time that the what they thought was everybody being pulled out to the time that you realized or the fire ground realized someone might still be inside or was still inside. Was that a long delay or it felt long and it was more like a minute delay? Um, I don't know, but let's look at the, I've got the report in front of me here. All that stuff is, is in there. Um, stand by one second. One of the most interesting things about this whole deal is, has been the time compression. I didn't know how long we, it took us to get them out until I read the report, honestly or until my interview with NIOSH and they said, Oh yeah, it was this long. Um, let's see. So 33, it was within, um, looks like it was within five minutes. Yeah. So it was within a couple minutes that they knew, I don't know. I mean, that's what the timeline indicates. Yeah. Right. Um, as far as when guys had hands on and said, you know, we hear past the alarm going off, um, you know, et cetera. I, I don't remember. I, I wasn't there for that part of it. I was kind okay. of doing my thing on the roof. So. But. And now you guys heard the pass alarm outside. 
No, uh, that was my, uh, some of my guys who were operating on, on the first floor heard it down okay. there. So I always wondered about that. If, you know, somebody is, you know, motionless that we could hear that from the outside with operations going on or rigs going on. So I was curious to that. Yeah. I don't, I, I I'd have to ask that, those guys. Um, I mean, I know the initial chaos of the scene, you got two guys coming out the front, one guy coming out the back, everybody's, you know, the guys who are in there are relatively mm -hmm. stunned and the, you still got a good smoke and fire. So it's um, no one knew what we were dealing with uh, really until three hours after the job. I mean, the photo, it's the photo of the collapse. It's kind of on the cover of the, of the uh, NIOSH report. Um, right. I didn't see that photo until the next day. Cause once the, uh, once our operation was kind of done, we, we cleared the fire scene while they were still fighting the fire. Um, and I remember just being like, I remember kind of feeling sick to my stomach. Like I had no idea how bad the collapse was until those photos surfaced from, from after the job was over um, just because of the conditions. It was still burning the whole time we were operating. So. So we go from um, the mayday's been declared to a par check. And now we, we realize we have a missing firefighter still. Yeah. So um I think pretty quickly uh, they were able to locate Matt. Um, the guys from uh, Squad 72, um, the two interior guys and my lieutenant who were down there heard the pass alarm and found him. And we knew who it was right away. They were able to, to identify him. Uh, so, so that all happened pretty quickly. Um, once I kind of realized that it was ongoing, and my lieutenant actually made a call to me to come down off the roof. Uh, and we realized, wait a second, there's been a collapse. Like all that information kind of evolved out. There wasn't like a, um, at least that I heard, there wasn't any kind of scene wide, hey, we have an ongoing collapse, mayday situation, et cetera. Um, that kind of kind of leaked out in the next couple of minutes through the radio traffic. But um, so I made it down. Uh, myself and another, another guy from 72s made it down off the roof and uh, – I went in the first floor of the dwelling um, to have a face-to-face -face with my officer, you know, like, Hey, what do, what are we looking at? What do we need? I could kind of see in the background, some activity and, and that we had a collapse and um, you know, so we just made a quick, like, like, Hey, what do we need to grab off the truck? What do we, uh, what do we need here? So we're talking about, you know, grab the, um, we run the Hearst hydraulic uh, extrication tools, which are phenomenal. Um, but uh it was kind of a, Hey, let's grab that and some airbags and, and, uh, we'll see what, see what happens. Um, you know, in retrospect, you, you know, that what you're working with, but at that moment, we didn't know, is this going to be a two minute extrication or a three day extrication? Uh, right. you can't tell. Um, so I turn around and I go to the front of the dwelling and a, the engine officer, actually the guy who called the mayday is walking up the steps with a set of, of hydraulic spreaders and hands them to me. And at this point, the chiefs had, had cleared everybody out who wasn't from 72s or the rescue. Um, so I told him, I said, you know, he hands me the spreaders. I'm like, all right, well, let's go see what we can make happen. Maybe this is a quick thing. And I told him to tell the other guy from squad 72, um, who wasn't from our shift. He's working overtime that day, who was walking up the street. He got down off the roof after me. I said, go tell him we need X, Y, and Z off the truck. Um, and so I went and turned around and went in to, to start trying to work and see what we could accomplish. Um, 
which was my first sort of big mistake and probably my, you know, holistically as the driver, I'm kind of responsible for logistics on operations like this. And I totally blew that. Um, I kind of got sucked into the rescue. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, I knew Matt fairly well. Um, and, uh, and again, like you don't know when you first start that this is gonna end up being an hour long operation with shoring and, and all. you think, okay, I've got a set of spreaders. He's pinned under floor. Let's see if we can pop this real quick and, and drag him out. Um, which ended up not being possible remotely. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I kind of blew it and logistics ended up being an ongoing issue for us as we realized we needed more and more equipment. Um, and a lot of that's kind of my fault for not stepping back, um, and, and running that show. Um, but, uh, in, in retrospect, um, if you do end up with a major operation like this, and this was a big takeaway for me from a rip perspective, if you do end up with a major extrication operation, uh, you're going to have a lot of guys who want to help. Um, so take those guys and just strip a truck. If you've got a rescue truck or two on scene, you know, get a pile in the front lawn, like get a, I don't know, you can put it in a pile or get, do the whole salvage cover thing or whatever. But like, like in retrospect, I would have told the first ladder, like, look, stretch your power, your cord reel down here and get a salvage cover and then send all your guys to my truck and we're just going to strip it. Like, I don't care what it is. Get me 10 guys and go grab a piece of equipment, take it to the thing to the front and come back. I don't care what it is. Just strip the entire truck and puke it up on the, in front of the, the, uh, the structure that you're working in. Um, because the, the back and forth stuff is going to kill you, especially if it's in this case, you know, we're down an icy street and around the corner, for our truck rescue ones down nice street the other way and around the corner. Um, you know, by the time the collapse unit's dispatched, it can't get close because you got a, a full box plus the, you know, a second alarm. alarm. Yeah, like you can't get the trucks close. So take 20 guys, 10 guys, and just go strip the trucks. Like, don't say, I think we need this. Just take every stinking piece of rescue equipment off of it and chuck it in a pile in the front yard. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's one of the big takeaways there. So, so we started working on, on, uh, Matt, um, and he was, so you can see from the pictures in the report, it was a, a V shaped collapse. I didn't know that till the next day. I thought it was a lean to, um, again, we had about a foot of visibility max, uh, throughout the incident. We tried some stuff with fans trying to move the smoke. Most of the fire on the first floor was, was knocked. It was still burning pretty well on the second floor. But because of all the debris and everything, there was just tons of smoldering and, and crap. So, um, so Matt was uh, trapped. Um, he was in a seated position facing the rear of the structure. And basically the, the nature of the collapse, the, the um, cause of death was positional asphyxiation, which basically means that um, he was pinned in such a way that he couldn't breathe. And, uh, and that's how he died. He actually, I don't think, had a broken bone in his body, which is pretty remarkable. Um, but uh, he had, uh, so he has all of these beams coming down at an angle kind of across his shoulders and back. Um, and then the debris that was pinned by those on top of his legs. Um, so we had to kind of, uh, the, the interesting, one of the, the crazy things was, 
you know, he's in this position and, and by the time I even made it in there, they already had, um, they had a rescue strap on him. That's other thing. And you've got four or five guys surging with adrenaline pulling on him and we couldn't budge him an inch. I mean, he was completely utterly pinned. Uh, so the first operation was to kind of, um, loosen him up to lay him back to kind of make him, make him flat. His SCBA was pinned. So we had to cut that off of him. Um, one interesting tidbit, uh, the, uh, I carry a set of Lyman's pliers, um, and the, um, the high pressure cable on the Scott SCBA, we could not cut with, with Lyman's pliers, the kind of braided silver cable. Okay. Um, I'd love to get a set of it. I should have, I should ask Scott for, um, just a, you know, five foot scrap piece, but, um, we ended up having to cut that with, uh, with hydraulic cutters for extrication. It was such a, such a thick piece of metal, but basically we had to cut him out of his SCBA by cutting the shoulder straps away, um, to lay him down and, and, uh, you know, remove his mask and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then kind of shoring as we went, we had to individually lift each of the floor joists one by one until we relieved enough of the pressure on his legs to then uh, slide him out. So um, it was kind of a, I think we used two, two rams and a set of spreaders um, kind of going joist by joist. And then we captured stuff as best we could with, with Paratech and some uh, extrication shoring um, that was just available. It was quick and easy. It was, you could grab it off the trucks easily. So, um, so that's kind of how it, how it went down. And uh, yeah, I mean, the whole time we couldn't really see. So, um, so it was pretty tricky, but, uh, but that's how we made it, made it work. Um, Nathan had a question for you. He said, how far into the building was the collapse? So here was one of the other weird things. And it's a, again, it's a miracle that there was no secondary collapse. Um, the point of impact where the, the collapse reached the floor of the living room was probably 20 feet in. I mean, we're not talking a really deep, this building is probably 16 by 35, something like that. Um, sure. It's all in the report, but but the, the, the actual failure started just inside the front door. And so each of the floor joists split at the midpoint, starting just inside, and then kind of the, each split got worse and worse and worse in a V-shape until the impact point, uh, which was kind of this dead center of the house, kind of about 20 feet in. Right. Did you guys have a, a crew working on the, let's say, the alpha side of the collapse compared to where you were at at the firefighter's position? trying to remove debris or any or anything no i mean we would it was there was a double window in the front that they would use a little bit to to slide equipment in and out um but uh there wasn't a whole lot to do out front it was kind of because we like again we had no idea that that collapse was over our heads um and this the basement floor subsequently had had cracked as well we had no idea about that that's a, it's a problem between a fire ground you know mayday collapse versus a regular collapse operation that you take a lot slower and that you, you know, investigate the floor below, you investigate all these things and kind of shore your way in. We were, we were shoring and working at the location of the entrapment um, and kind of oblivious to everything else because it was impossible to know. You couldn't see, you couldn't, you know, we didn't have 
30 sock guys to send into the basement and send all over. Like we, you're working with what you have um, as quickly as possible. Um, so it was kind of, uh, yeah, kind of a make do situation and not the way you would do a traditional collapse rescue. Yeah. Seeing, seeing the, um, the photos from the NIOSH report and, and the two Paratech struts sitting up there. I mean, just getting those in and set up in a smoking condition under that high stress, you know, that's, that's an amazing job to you guys. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm losing my voice. Amazing job to you guys and, and the people that were working because, you know, as we know it, there's guys that have trouble outside in the, the daylight setting those up under stress sometimes. So, you know, that, that's a feat in itself. Well, what we were even, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if we had any idea what we were even grabbing. It was kind of like, well, this looks like something. So we'll, we'll put one here in the, the photos. You see this weird decorative beam looking thing. Okay. And that was where visibility sort of started. Like that was as high. Like I knew there was this weird beam there. Um, and then we had these joists coming down, but I never even operated on the sort of the Bravo side of the pile. I was always on the, the, the Delta side kind of working that void between the party wall and the collapse itself. So we just didn't know. So it was kind of like, well, we're lifting this floor joist. It's collapsed. So we'll try to try to grab it with something to capture our progress. So it doesn't come down on us more, but it was kind of a grab what you could and hope for the best kind of deal. Did you guys have a tremendous amount of movement with the Rams and the spreaders? So it was a Royal pain because of the hoarding conditions. Um, you're used to pushing off of something solid. And so like you, you try to use a spreader and it would just squish down into the floor because there was piles of clothes and, and junk. So we'd had to get chunks of cribbing in there to spread the footprint out. Um, so each push had to go off of a piece of cribbing on the ground because there was, the ground was too squishy. Like there was nothing to push off of. Uh, and even with the, the floor itself having failed beneath us. Um, so we had to, uh, sort of solidify the base that we were pushing off of um, to do each of those lifts. All right. So sense. now, meanwhile, this is all going on. You guys have still fire on the second floor. Um, I'm assuming host teams are still operating uh, offensively or defensively. They're, they're defensively um, from the exterior hitting the second floor above us. But the, the, the trick there is that they're adding more, more weight the whole time. Uh, which is a big part of the report is this look at, you know, the amount of water we flowed into the dwelling and then the, uh, the fact that it was a hoarder. So a lot of the, the materials inside the house absorbed a lot of the water, which, which captured that weight. Um, so it was tricky, but we had to at least keep the fire at bay. Um, there was a hose line, I think, available to us at the, at the, on the first floor. We didn't use it a whole lot. The engine 45's hose line was wrapped across his leg, so we had to have them drain that on the interior in order to free him. That was one of the things trapping him. But, uh, yes, yeah, so there are guys operating outside, hitting the second floor from the windows. So from a command's perspective, we've had, we had two different operations going on by two different chiefs, correct? If I understand it right, the way the report read? like fire attack versus rescue sort of command is one of the problems at that job. Um, the report kind of goes into that um, with uh, the appropriate chiefs not getting on scene in the right amount of time. Um, I'll let uh, the Philadelphia report goes into that in detail. If guys find that online, I'll kind of let them read up on that. 
Um, But my focus, I I was just inside trying to do rescue stuff and asking for equipment. So I wasn't paying much attention to what was, um, you know, the command structure was kind of outside. Yeah. Just saying, look, I need a sawzall and I need to strut. And, and I was the the idiot who should have been going to get it. So um, (laughs) that's the, uh, from my narrow perspective there, I didn't have a whole lot of uh, input on that. The other interesting I took from the NIOSH report is that one time one of the uh, crews called for fireground silence and for hose lines to stop flowing. Um, any idea of what that was to uh, regards to maybe to locate or gain pr- perspective of where they were in the building? I'm not sure. I'd have to um, look up when that happened in the, in the time frame. Yep. I mean, the difficulty, and again, memory is selective and it's tough to remember what, uh, what even, you know, trying to process my own memory of the event. But um, I know the smoke conditions on the first floor were really difficult. And so, uh, and the extrication took over an hour. It was 62 minutes from collapse to, to extrication. Um, so we're in there just kind of eating the smoke, honestly, you couldn't have fit where in the void that we need to fit in any way with a pack on. So, um, the, uh, so trying to manage the smoke, um, you know, we tried different things, having guys fog out the front window for ventilation and then put some fans in service, blowing from the front to the rear, then blowing from the rear to the front. And it was kind of a complicated process. Um, trying to match that with the wind that was occurring that day. Um, so, it could have been related to um, to just ceasing those operations to not impede us, but I'd have to go back and read it. Uh, yeah. Again, my my perspective on the job is 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 pretty narrow to what we were facing on the interior. So, right, yeah, I I, I understand it's hard, you know, just going through that that report though. There was a couple of interesting things that stuck out like that, you know, ceasing uh, talk on the radio and operations. You never you never think about that, so. Um, that might be a part of the game plan to work for you. Mm-hmm. So um, you hit on earlier when we were talking about the uh, multi-loop strap that you wanted to hook a carabiner. Um, you know, uh, one thing we definitely, many of us talk about in the fire in the RIT world is the stress of the firefighter and the fatigue aspect of it. I mean, you guys said you are, you were in there for 62 minutes. Um, you know, I'm sure there was people coming in and going out to relieve each other, but, you know, you said you had trouble with a carabiner. Can you jump yeah, so, on that? So the big problem, like the, the big, when I talk about RIT, especially RIT training, um, the uh, these events don't happen in a vacuum. And that's the trouble with, with training-wise is no matter how realistic you make the training, um, you're never going to achieve the same level of emotional fatigue uh, and mental stress um, as the real deal. Because in training, you know that, you know, in an hour or two, you're going home and having dinner, or going to have lunch and watching the football game. Um, so the, the collapse occurred 39 minutes into the job. Um, so my unit and rescue one had both been operating probably, I don't know, we'll say 30 minutes prior to this even occurring. So, you know, we've been carrying equipment down the street and going in and out of the Delta. And then I was going up on the roof and cutting holes and, and that's all before we started a Mayday operation. So, um, and as we you know, know from the statistics, the, the writ in the front yard is doing the mayday 10% of the time as far as the extrication is concerned. So right. this idea of having fresh guys 
all peachy clean, ready to come do this is just not very realistic. Um, so you have to look at the fact that most of the guys doing the rescue are, are going to be starting from a baseline of fatigue. Um, so you take a baseline of fatigue, you take a guy who's been on, on a bottle for 15, 20 minutes already. Um, and then say, Oh yeah, mayday just happened. Um, and things are a little hairy. So his pulse is, is already elevated and it's going to go through the roof. And then, um, so, and you're dealing with, you know, when we were trying to get him out, you're dealing with the, uh, um, you know, the emotional aspects too. You're kind of like, wow, this is actually happening. I know this guy. Um, it doesn't look good. Uh, you know, we're doing the best we can kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, so I remember thinking I want to get, so, so we use a couple of straps on him to try to, to help try to pull him out. Um, and we kept moving them on him, depending on how much of him we exposed. And from where I was operating, trying to lift these joists with the tools, it was a terrific uh, sort of body angle. Like it wasn't a, um, from an ergonomic perspective, trying to wedge these tools into this small space in a collapse and avoid in a fire. It's not like you're, you know, in a parking lot cutting up in a cut up a, a, a junk car or anything like you're, you're in a really horrific position. Um, and I just remember like thinking I had to conserve every conceivable amount of energy possible. So if there was a movement I didn't have to make, I shouldn't make it. Um, and that, that was one of them. I was like, well, I really want to reach up and unclip this carabiner, but I don't know if I can. And if I can, I don't know if, if that exertion of energy is worth it. So I'll go to a plan B, um, which was pretty remarkable. Like looking back on it being like, wow, like, that's not a big deal. I, I, I mean, it was just a non-locking carabiner. I wanted to unclip from a big loop on the front of my coat and I couldn't do it. Um, so that, that one thing alone has shaped, you know, a lot about how I think about RIT and kind of a simplicity aspect. Like you have to be, simplicity has to be the baseline. Um, you know, it's, it's always easy to make things more complex, but, but you have to be, you have to be operating and you have to be training from a baseline of we need to use the most simple, uh, the, you know, the simplest techniques we can um, because of what that environment's going to be and, and what the physiological responses of the rescuing firefighters is going to be. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting takeaway that, you know, you had the cognitive thought to say, hey, is this wasteful energy, what I'm doing right now, you know? Um, Sometimes we don't have that opportunity to think that or, or through that. So that's, that's pretty wild to hear. Well, it took a um, while. I mean, and there was downtime in there when we, you know, we made one lift and it wasn't enough. And so we need to wait for another set of spreaders to come or another, like, you know, again, going back <laughs> to um, my own part in the logistics nightmare, but, um, right. but so there was time to, and one of the, one of the interesting moments in there, was trying to pull back and process is like, whoa, I'm in the middle of a mayday extrication right now. This is kind of, uh, this is kind of insane. Like I remember having that thought of like awareness of what was going on and where I was and, and feeling kind of, uh, yeah, it was wild. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, difficult. Well, I, I like where you hit on the simplicity, you know, um, everybody's like, oh, well, we load the Stokes basket with this equipment, that equipment, we drag it to the scene, and we don't use any of it. 
well, like you said, if you could have the truck in the front lawn stripped out of it, you know, you'd have everything at your disposal. Um, but you know, kudos to you and the strap. I mean, that thing has been making a bunch of rescues in Philly this week or this past month or two, right? Yeah. All over the place. There's a couple I haven't posted. Uh, um, it was used several times on jobs in Philly. Uh, a couple, some of those folks didn't make it. Some of those folks did, um, uh, rescue one in Durham, North Carolina you used it on a, a really difficult, uh, hoarder rescue a week or two ago. Uh, I think two out of the three people they pulled out passed away, unfortunately. Um, but they, they used it there on somebody. They used it in Connecticut on a job, um, somebody who, who survived. So it's been, yeah, it's been getting some use. Um, but, uh, I mean, I don't take, you know, um, <laughs> my, uh, the company motto is solely Deo Gloria to God alone be the glory. I'll, if, if any good stuff comes from this, none of it was my own anyway. I'll just take credit for the, the junk. So, so. <laughs> I mean, it's doing its job. So it's, it's cool to see a product that it, that it's working as it, it says it should sell. Good. And that's been encouraging, you know, hearing the feedback, um, you know, it's a lot of work uh, getting this, this company up and running and a lot more than I ever anticipated. Um, but, uh, but it, it does make it worth it when it seems that the tools are making a difference. So I'll take it. I've seen it's gone into uh, the uh, water rescue side a lot lately. Um, is there any more movement on that? Yeah. So I've got a whole bunch of video planned. Um, it took me so long to edit it and it got cold. I'm probably going to wait a month or two and just kind of release it in the spring when people start thinking about that again. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we did, a, a, I got a bunch of uh, PA water instructors together and went on the river in a mor one morning and did all kinds of fun stuff. Um, just using all ARS products for, um, for boat stuff, for rope stuff. And uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty neat day. So I'm really excited. There's some great, some great content that came out of that day. Um, and uh, yeah. It's good. We're, I've been trying to make that silly thing fl uh, float for five years. Um, it's been <laughs> harder than I expected, but, uh, but we'll get there hopefully. Right. Throw some uh, floaties on it. Like your kids have. Yeah, man. Absolutely. So, um, I don't know if Jim or Nathan, if you guys have any other questions for uh, Tim here. Um, sorry. I had to jump off there for a few minutes. So took a work phone call. Um, and maybe you've already talked about this, but with, uh, with an internal report and the NIOSH report both coming out, did you see many discrepancies between the two or were they both pretty much parallel to the findings and the investigation? Um, they were parallel. I think that the NIOSH report is more of a copy of the Philly report and the Philly report goes into more detail. Okay. Um, I was actually, you know, a lot of times you, you hear about these reports and I was very uh, pleasantly surprised with, with how the Philly report came out um, with the stuff they did hit on the stuff that they kind of intentionally, I think for good reason, uh, shied away from and left out. But, um, but yeah, I think they, uh, I think they did a pretty decent job with it. Uh, this, this job, the one interesting thing about this fire is, uh, and that brings up another kind of building construction point is that, you know, generally speaking, I'd fight the same fire the same way tomorrow. Um, so the big, one of the big takeaways, at least the reports are talking about with this is, is the time that we were offensive for um, contributing to the, the collapse 
Um, obviously, the hoarder. There was also this issue with these uh, wood joists um, that failed, had a notch taken out of them about 100 years ago for a, a gas pipe right in the center, right where the collapse occurred. What role that played is kind of a mystery. Some people think it played a huge role. Some people think it didn't play much of a role at all because it's not like this house is unique and they've been going to fires in this neighborhood for the last hundred years. This is a very, very heavy fire load area of the city. Um, so it, it was kind of a, it was kind of a, you know, the fire ground is an uncertain, dangerous place. And sometimes you're going to, going to lose. And that's kind of what happened that day. Um, there wasn't a lot of, you know, there are a couple issues, but there weren't a whole, you know, some line of duty deaths, you get like, oh, well, was so-and-so not there? Did so-and-so not do their job? Or did this engine screw up? Like, that's not what happened there. Um, you know, had it not collapsed, we had the bulk of the fire knocked down and we would have overhauled and gone about our business and is what it is. And, um, you know, they had a fire a few weeks later, two blocks up with the exact same scenario, same uh, heavy fire load, first floor, they explored it later, same notched out Joyce, um, you know, and, and, and we lost that day. Um, the big problem is that, you know, ordinary construction, we kind of operate with this mindset that we can be in there forever. And that's true to a point, but now age and lack of maintenance has made us fall off the backside of that, that curve. Yeah. Um, I, I, sorry. Um, and I don't, uh, you guys didn't experience it here, but I'm sure you are seeing it in your city that the renovations being done where people are gutting these row houses and leaving the shell and then they're rebuilding the interior with lightweight, you know, yeah. type five construction. No longer do you even know what is, is being exactly. put in there. And, you know, I think in the, in the other side, like the more suburban areas where, um, you're running single family dwelling neighborhoods. I, I think for a long time, we've put this focus on like, you're okay in dimensional lumber and you're not okay in type five Correct. or lightweight. And that's not accurate because I use my, my personal home as an example. Our utility room is right underneath our front door. It's an unprotected room, right? So our basement is finished, but the the front door, the front entrance to our house underneath of it is if there's a fire in our utility room, it's going to have a direct impact on mm -hmm. the dimensional lumber that holds up our house. Mm -hmm. And in a vent limited fire where it doesn't break out for an hour or two, that stuff is still being decomposed or, you know, pyrolysis right. is still taking place. And we have this, Oh, th don't worry. That's a dimensional lumber neighborhood. You're okay to operate in there. And mm -hmm you can still be going into this structure that has been compromised. So, you know, it's absolutely have the knowledge of how long different types of lumber lasts under fire, but that doesn't make, that does not a equal translation to the fire ground. You know, I, and that's why I like when people focus more on, you still have to find the lowest level of fire and try and attack it from there. And then like you're saying, the timeline still matters. There is a point at which we have to be able to recognize like, okay, we've been operating on this fire ground in and out of the structure for this clock, this timeline here. When do we consider saying, like you said, we have the fire that's, it's mostly knocked down. 
when do when are we reevaluating the risk benefit uh, ratio or um, formula as the fire continues through its time? You know. Yeah, and that's the trick because you don't you don't know anymore. I mean, I it, let's assume for a second that the like five minute lightweight and twenty minute ordinary rule is is holding fast. Like that makes me feel warm and fuzzy that I can I can uh, you know know that I've got this time, but it's just not true because it's funny. One of the guys I work with has a, a joke that, you know, a tube of caulk could have saved North Philly 50 years ago, but now <laughs> like you have all these, these houses that no one has maintained. They're all leaking. They've all got rot. And you can look at the front of them and have absolutely no idea. Yeah. And so it's just that tricky, like, okay, everything we do, we have to be more careful of, but again, there's no way to know. I mean, even if, even if you told me, Hey, look, watch out for this house, it's suspect you just don't know you just don't know i mean at the end of the day firefighting is a dangerous occupation and we can do our best and every once in a while it's just going to bite you in the rear end yeah uh, I, I agree with that completely and I, I think you've said that kind of twice now and it, it relates right back to that um that quote we can do everything right in this job and still get killed absolutely <clears throat> and i think this is a prime example of the of that job i mean sure you know in retrospect Cause here's the thing. If we had pulled out, let's say we pulled out, if collapses at 39 minutes, let's say we pulled out at 20 or pulled out at 30. Um, we would have put water on the fire, knocked it down. And then a bunch of suckers would have gone in to do overhaul. Yeah. So sure. We could have gotten lucky and the collapse could have occurred between the time we pulled out and between the time the guys went in for overhaul, but it could have had the exact same outcome had we pulled out early. So yeah. it's tough. Yeah, you could what if every fire all day long or every call even all day long. Um, and sometimes the what if game is pretty good. You know, it's when you're learning, you know, and training. What if we did this or what if we did that? But, you know, you, like you said, you don't know. You, you can't – you don't – you have a certain amount of cards to play with and, and exactly. you probably don't have that card. So Exactly. It just goes – you know, if there's one lesson, it's get out in your local. Get out and drive around and – gather as much you know pre-incident intel as you can um because once it's rock and roll it's too late <laughs> so right well i think we took a bunch of lessons from you today um you know even though i think you were a little hard on yourself for personal accountability but you know obviously you still played a, a tremendous role in what happened that day so um you know and i know it's not easy to speak to and i really appreciate you taking the time you know, and the energy to, to talk about something of this magnitude. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because we need to learn from certain situations and firsthand operations. So, uh, you know, I, from all of us here, I'm, uh, you know, thank you for taking this time. Absolutely. No, I appreciate the opportunity and, and uh, yeah, these are weird incidents, but, but if you don't talk about them, you can't get the lessons out there. And, and I was just a small part of it. I mean, one of the guys who was, uh, from rescue one who's heavily involved in the, in the extrication. I think this was like his fifth line of duty death extrication wow. um, in his career. He's, he's, and he's been on multiple, multiple fatality line of duty. I mean, the guys, the guys uh, got some crazy experience in this, uh, um, in this topic. And even my guys on my, my shift, um, we lost Joyce Craig in 2014 in a, a basement, fire uh incident and it was my guys who found her i was i took the night off i had to swap that night um 
but uh but it's kind of a, a crazy amount of experience that some of these folks in in my city unfortunately have dealing with this um so you know we need to find ways to share uh some of the lessons from this so that other people can have some benefit from it but um, but no i appreciate the opportunity and and what you guys are doing to push this uh push this stuff forward i mean people need to up their game in this this area um rid is everybody's job so i appreciate all your guys efforts to train and, and push the message out there well hopefully this covid disappears soon because it's putting a hamper on our damper on everything we're trying to do from training to oh. you know actual calls regarding fires it's in my area it's been ruthless with that so well i'm sitting um, in my basement on quarantine right now i get tested tomorrow oh man <laughs> awesome <laughs> but who knows we'll see two of the guys i worked with last week are both positive so i might have it Go myself get. right now who knows yeah <laughs> i'll get your brain again. scraped yeah really exactly i've been tested like every other shift so a couple like, quarantines myself you know yeah, it's been no it's fun. been wild yeah. Um, I've avoided it. When my crew got quarantined, it was actually the shift before I got back off holidays. Nice. Canada has COVID? <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> I know. It's hard to know what's going on up here. You guys have been stealing the news for the whole world for the last uh, year and a bit. You right. could have all that yeah. news. You could have all that news. Canada needs some riots and some political unrest. Um, yeah, you can have it, man. You should yeah. go march somewhere or something. Start something. <laughs> Do you guys have any statues or monuments up there? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For the sake of the audience listening, below the 49th parallel, no. (laughs) (laughs) Columbus discovered Canada. I'm I'm going up there and riding. Nathan just saved Canada. (laughs) Um, Uh, Tim, I would definitely have you on in another episode and go over some, you know, we'll talk about training or, you know, just basic RIT stuff, not uh, stuff related to any uh, line of duties, you know? Um, so we definitely have you on again in the future. Awesome. Um, and I'm sure like, you know, that rope rabbit hole will be deep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, uh, you guys hit the nail on the, the head with the, the term RIT nerd. Um, <laughs> I'm all for some RIT nerdery. So yeah. yeah, I'd love to do that sometime. To be fair, I want to get my hands on some of your equipment there and, and get, you know, <laughs> down that rabbit hole. Um, yeah. we'll make it happen so guys anything else to add before we uh we close out this session i uh, again no, just um, oh sorry go ahead nathan oh uh, i just just thank you i'm, I'm i'll apologize for the fact that i was uh not 100 percent attentive because of the morning here but uh running around with the kids getting them to eat and brush their teeth but um no thank you very much for coming on like you say it's not it's good to share like even don abbott figures he's only getting 30 percent of the maydays happening out there and we think of how much information that's given us and how that's changed how Mm -hmm. we're looking at writ and how we approach it so the more information that people are willing to share and and unfortunately i think it's sometimes i know with like my job uh a lot of the times when these incidents happens it's um guys being embarrassed to share it and embarrassed is the wrong word because like you say the fact is is stuff happens and sometimes we lose it doesn't we can do everything right and it still goes wrong so it's important that we share all that as much as we can so Absolutely. thank you very much same for me uh just thank you so much for coming on and, and having this conversation with us um 
I, I don't want to repeat what the other two guys said, but I feel the exact same way. Um, thank you very much. Yeah, really. So uh, that's it for today, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Big thank you from Tim from Anderson Rescue Solutions uh, for coming on and telling his, uh, his account of what he's encountered. Um, Tim, where can people hit you up if they need uh, questions on equipment or just in general? Yeah, definitely. So uh, the website is just andersonrescue.com and then Anderson Rescue Solutions on Instagram and Facebook. Um, you can get me through any of that or uh, just info at andersonrescue.com is the email address. Um, so yeah, any of those things and, and please check us out. And just so all of you know, Tim doesn't pay me. He doesn't send me stuff. <laughs> but the Anderson Rescue Solutions or uh, the ARA, the multi-loop strap, there's so many things. There you go. <laughs> the multi-loop strap is, is something you guys definitely should look into, um, whether it's for your department, yourself, your crew, whatever. It, it's relatively inexpensive compared to other stuff that's on, you know, on the market for sale for firefighters. Definitely get your hands on one and give it a try. So with that, Tim, thank you. Thank you, guys. Appreciate the opportunity. Anytime. You guys have a good day. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Written Nerds podcast. We've got a few more lined up. Hopefully we'll be dropping one every month for the next couple months. Thanks for your support and we'll uh, see you on the next one.